see you all out here this morning. We continue in our study of Matthew's gospel. And let me just warn you this morning that the hits just keep on coming. Um, and so we've been in Matthew's gospel for a couple of years now. And Lord willing, we'll probably be done with it before Jesus returns, although I cannot guarantee that, um, which is evidenced as we go through the text that tells us we cannot guarantee that. But we take the Bible seriously here at the Austin Stone, and we love to just sit under the authority and the blessing and the joy of the word, and we trust the Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead our calendar. If you've been with us just since Easter, you might wonder about the sanity of our preaching strategy, because since Easter, the text has had us examining some of the following things. Uh, church discipline, the week after Easter, which was fun. Um, uh, forgiveness, uh, at, at pretty much all costs the second week, and then last week, divorce and remarriage. And yet by God's grace, you have returned today because maybe you're experiencing some of the glorious tension of our Lord Jesus Christ in the text. You see, when you study the gospels with any kind of seriousness, with any kind of humility, you will discover that our King Jesus is not afraid to tell us the truth. He does it boldly, but ever so kindly all the time. He is tender-hearted. But that doesn't mean that he isn't prepared to say the tough things. He says the tough things. He is compassionate, but he speaks also with remarkable candor and clarity. When other people want blurred lines, he has very clear ones. They just fall in places that make other people extremely uncomfortable. He is priestly. He's our sympathetic high priest who is with us and compassionate for us in our weaknesses. But he's also prophetic, calling us towards the life of the kingdom. He is both of those things all of the time. And so friends, we can trust him when he says stuff to us through his word. All that to say that Jesus today through the text is going to confront us lovingly with the topic of money and wealth and possessions and the unbridled pursuit of those things. You're welcome. It would be awkward to leave now. So you're kind of stuck in the room. You're like, ah, oh. but if you're new or just returning to church, you're like, great. Of all the Sundays to come, they're just going to fleece me. Let me remind you of a few things this morning. Firstly, we speak about money because the Bible does. The Bible talks about money and possessions over 2,100 times. Do you know that? I know it's a big book, but that's with alarming regularity. That's three times more than it speaks about love, seven times more than it speaks about prayer. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. You see, God clearly cares about money and the corrosive effect that it can have on the hearts and souls of people that he loves. As a result, friends, even though I do observe, I, I see this, even though we see that across the world, many in the global church speak about this way too much and not in a way that reflects the heart of God, we as a church community probably don't speak about it as much as we ought to <laughs> because it's awkward and it makes people feel uncomfortable. But Jesus saw money and possessions as a key to someone's and so he wasn't afraid to challenge our use of it and our desire for it in order to get to what? To get to our hearts. And so friends, let me set your mind at ease today. There'll be 
no past the plate palooza that goes on around here. We aren't gonna do second or third or fourth offerings. We aren't gonna close the door and come up with a number. I don't have a thermometer that we're gonna put up here on stage that dictates your faithfulness of giving this morning. That's not what we're after. Today, we are after your hearts. We aren't after your cash. We are after your hearts. And Jesus says, often you will find those two things in the same place which is why you need to speak about one in order to get to the other. A couple disclaimers before we get into the text. I've learned that with some helpful context before the text, my inbox becomes a way more sane place (laughs) on a Monday morning. When we speak of what the Bible says about wealth, here's what we do. (laughs) We pretty much always presume that it's speaking to someone wealthier than us. That's always where we draw the line, right? Jesus is gonna have warnings today for the wealthy and for those who pursue becoming wealthy. And many of you are gonna go, yeah, get him, pastor, get him. (laughs) Tell him, right? Because where do we draw the line of wealth? We draw it at wealthier than us, regardless of where we are in that spectrum. I would ask you to honestly assess and consider your wealth in two relative ways today. Consider what comes in and not just what is left over. (laughs) Some of us only consider our wealth relative to what's left over, but that might have as much to do with our spending as it does with our lack of income. Does that make sense? I know that's not true for all of you. It's definitely true for some of you. I've discovered in the city of Austin, it is possible to be house poor, which means that relative to the world, you are phenomenally wealthy. I went on Zillow today and they're just making up numbers. They just (laughs) just make them up. That's wrong, because that seems to be my telephone number, not the value of my house, right? They're just making it up. And yet, when I look at my bank statement at the end of the month, I go like, well, I don't have a lot of money, right? So this can't be talking to me. And yet, in an asset register, relative to what I owe, and now you're sitting on this increasing, oh, you're wealthy, right? Now, I know that's not true for all of you, but that's been a real consideration for me. And then consider yourself relative, not just to others in your context, but to a larger context. When we consider ourselves relative to the globe, Most of us, on the perspective, measured against the perspective of the other seven billion people on the planet, find ourselves in a position of relative wealth. And so we must be be cautious when we say, oh no, Jesus is definitely not speaking to me. Maybe he is more than you think. Uh, Second disclaimer, I do know that wealth isn't universal in this room or in the rooms that are listening to the stream today. Not all of you are wealthy. In fact, listen, Many of you are in financial pain today. I understand that. This boom city isn't working out well for everyone. The costs of everything just continue to go up and and the gap between the wealthy and the poor widens and widens on a daily basis. Not all of us have been immune to the effects of the COVID economy. Friends, I wanna tell you that we see you this morning And if you are in financial pain, we wanna give you opportunity to press into the community of Christ today with your needs. We wanna be the kind of community that Acts describes where it says there wasn't a needy person among them. Why? Because the church took care of each other. If that's you, we wanna hear from you. We wanna walk with you in humility and openness and transparency. The Bible, listen though, paints a picture of equal opportunity idolatry though, (laughs) when it comes to money. The rich aren't the only ones who can have a sinful love for and reliance upon money. 
The Bible doesn't single out wealth or poverty as a virtue, and it certainly doesn't only present one of them as a threat. The love of money can be a universal experience, regardless of your income. While the text today does speak of a rich man who loves money more than he loves God, I know that it isn't only the rich who sin that way. The biblical warning that Paul wrote to Timothy is about desire for wealth and not just actual accomplishment. It's about what our heart wants. And so friends, listen, let me say this. You don't hear this from, pulpit, no, from pulpits regularly and that pains me. I know this tension because I personally have wrestled with the love of money my entire life. It's a constant fight for me. I grew up in a family with very limited means. <laughs> and so it has been my lifelong temptation to believe that if I had more, I would be content. I would be settled. I would be satisfied and able to freely enjoy God. As a young man, when my parents were barely scraping together the, the means just to feed us, and I mean that quite literally, just trying to hold it together, I got sent on a cricket scholarship, which I know sounds like some language from the moon, right? You're like, Quidditch? No, cricket, it's, a, it's an actual sport, right? And sport, yes, sport. And, and, and got into an exclusive all boys school, but the problem with that was I was the poorest kid in my year by miles. And what that does in your heart is you start to say, oh, if only I was like them, then I would be content. Then I would be happy. God in his wisdom, <laughs> oh man, he's had me ministering to people, mostly people who are significantly more wealthy than I am for 15 years. Why? He cares about my heart. I've learned a lot about humanity and humility in that process. And so I share today as a sympathetic minister with a contrite spirit who has had the spirit working on his own idolatry even this week again as we got to debit order day, right, which falls over the weekend, which is just the most depressing thing in the world because you just see all of your idols taking your money one by one by one by one. All right, friends, let's read this famous text together. You ready? You suitably nervous? Praise the Lord. It's going to be fun. Let's go. Matthew 19. And we'll go from verse 16. At some point on the preaching calendar, my name is gonna line up with just like Jesus loves you, right? And I get the, an easy week at some point, but not soon, it doesn't look like. <laughs> Behold, a man came to him. So coming to Jesus, right? And so he's making his way to Jerusalem. He's encountering people as he goes. He's speaking these hard truths. And this man comes up to him and he's saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good. There is only one who is good, right? Pause there. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Jesus is saying, let's just establish terms here. If you call me good teacher, there's only one who is good and he is God. So therefore just understand who you're addressing <laughs> and understand the gap between us in this space. He then goes on though, if you would enter life, Keep the commandments. And this is gonna feel strange to you who believe in salvation by grace alone, which we do as well. I'll explain it, I promise. He said to him, which ones? Right, there were 613. He's like, you're gonna to need to be more specific. Which ones do I need to keep to enter life? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, right? He's stoked. But he knows, wait, that's still not it. 
what do I still lack? Let's just stop there for a second. This rich young ruler is a powerful warning sign for us in our upward mobility today. We're told in three of the gospels that he is rich, right? That, that, that detail is important in the story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record that for us. Luke and Matthew add the details that he was young. In fact, that's Luke and Mark, I believe, add the details that he's young and that he was a ruler. He's hugely influential. We learn in his response to Jesus here that he's also immensely principled and religious and tries to live, like, live life the right way. In other words, this young dude is crushing it. He's successful, he's loaded, and he's quite nice. Have you ever met anyone like this? They're the worst, right? You're just like, oh, they're the worst. And you watch their lives on social media and you give them the begrudging like. You know the begrudging like? Like, I have to give it, but I don't want to. I don't like any of that because it's way better than me, but I'll give it to you because that's what we do in this game, all right? And that's how we build this algorithm. And I wanna be you, but I really resent you. Like, great, man, you're rocking it, bro. Keep it up. There he is, eight-pack abs with a water cash, right? And all the orphans he's feeding, he's like, (laughs) But he comes to Jesus with a question, a question that leads to another question. These two questions are amazing. The first one is, what must I do? And the second one is, why do I still lack? What do I still lack? He isn't fulfilled. He isn't content. He thought he would be. He's, he's, he's accomplished all the things he set out to accomplish. And it's this sense of dissonance that drives him to Jesus asking, teacher, what good deed, what more must I do? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now stop here for a second. There were different words for life in the original language, right? The word he uses here for life is the Greek word zoe. It's different from the Greek word bios, which means physical or biological existence. He isn't saying, how do I stay alive? Jesus is like, breathe in. Breathe out, got it, right? He's saying, no, no, how do I have that life that you promised? A life to the fullest, a life of abundance, this kingdom life that you keep talking about. How do I get that life? A life full of blessing and vitality. It's not just physical life, but quality life. This young man is like a a young Bono expressing that he still hasn't found what he is looking for. Or, or a young John Mayer ironically proclaiming on a Grammy winning record that something is missing. And I don't know how to fix it, right? That was a great record, by the way. We really don't learn from the costly dysfunction of celebrities, do we? We watch all of them blow their lives up one after the other, accomplishing the very things we think will make us happy. We watch them burn out not being happy. (laughs) And we go like, nah, but I'll be different. I can pursue that, I'll be okay. This young man knows he's not okay. And Jesus engages him with a truly strange and genuinely wonderful conversation about the pursuits of real life. He tells him, keep the commandments. And where does he begin? With the second table of the law, the ones that deal with loving your neighbor. Now listen, Jesus isn't saying for a second that you can earn your salvation by loving your neighbor. Rather, he is lovingly revealing the true nature of this young man's heart. He's pulling it back like a master teacher. He's such a wonderful pastor, Jesus. He, he pulls back the layers of this man's heart. Why do I say that? Well, firstly, Jesus says, hey, there's a clear distinction between God and man by saying that there's only one who is good. If that is the case, young man, you need to start with the consideration that you are not good enough for God. You need to remember that. 
And so your question is an irrelevant question unless you start with a poverty of spirit that says, you are good and I am not. That's how we get true life. That's how we get into the kingdom with that declaration. Second, the teachings of Jesus show us what he means when he says you should keep these laws. And it's more stringent than anyone thought, right? When he says don't commit adultery, what does, he, what does he say is the true meaning of that? Don't look at anyone with lustful intent. When he says don't murder, what's the true meaning of that? Jesus says don't call anyone a fool. You're like, oh man, I killed 600 people on social media this morning. At least, right? That's where Jesus draws the parameter. When he says, love your neighbor, and they go, who's my neighbor? He goes like, Samaritans are your neighbors. And so there's no ways this young man has kept the law. That's what Jesus is trying to show him. What you need is poverty of spirit. How he should reply at this point is, yes, Lord, you alone are good, and I have no way of keeping these commandments. Please save me so that I can enter into the life of the kingdom. Third, Jesus leaves off the table the the, the first part of the law, the one about loving God above all else. He's gonna get there in a second. That's what he's setting this young man up with. He's showing him that he doesn't actually love God more than he loves his own successful life. Jesus is such a wonderfully kind teacher. You see what he's doing here? He's doing it with us too, if we'll listen. This young man responds. He's kept those commandments and I feel for him. In this moment, he's a young religious man. He's tried to live within the rules of the system his whole life, and he knows that he still lacks. Such a stark warning. He has everything that the world says he's gained, and he still lacks. His money meant something, but it wasn't able to provide him the meaning that he desired. You see, friends, money is meaningful. Listen to me carefully today. Your money is meaningful. The scriptures tell us that all the time. In fact, I think it's one of the principalities and powers that the scriptures speak of. It's meaningful. That's why it talks to us about it all the time. It's saying, don't give your heart to this. It's meaningful. But if you steward it well, we can, we can fund the kingdom. It's meaningful. But listen, it is a terrible meaning maker. Even when we don't lack money, we still lack life. And that's the warning of this young man. Benjamin Franklin highlighted this clearly before he realized how ironic it would be that he would be the guy on our $100 bill that P. Diddy would be reminding us about, right? It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Um, But he said this, it's gonna be a cultural tour this morning right across the length and breadth of the musical landscape. Benjamin Franklin said, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it ever. The more he has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, It makes one. This man has a vacuum that his stuff cannot fill. He knows he lacks and he doesn't know what to do with it. He knows there's a righteousness gap between his best efforts and the goodness of God and he doesn't know how to bridge it. But Jesus knows. Look what he says, verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect. Now you might stop and go like, Jesus, who's perfect, right? What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Be perfect therefore. (laughs) He says, there's a kingdom life, there's a righteousness available to you that comes from the life of God that then enters you into this kingdom life. It's a life of perfection. Will you still sin? Yes, but you'll be covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the life of the kingdom. If you want that, if you want that, then for this particular man, here's the instruction. Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And the young man heard this, he went away 
sorrowful. Not many people encounter Jesus and leave sorrowful, but he's one of them. Why? He had great possessions. Now, it's important, friends, stop for a second. Important to note, Jesus doesn't call for this measure of financial sacrifice from everyone he meets. And he actually meets a lot of rich people. It's one of the things that confounds the Pharisees. They're like, he eats with the rich and the poor. I don't get this guy, right? And we don't have other records of him saying to other rich people, you've got to give it all away, otherwise you can't follow me. But with this young man, he's pulling back the curtain on his life and he's laying his true love and hope exposed. And it's helpful for us. It's a bridge too far for this young man. The life he once requires letting go of the life that he has built and relied upon and he cannot do it. This young man makes the painful discovery that many of us are yet to make that maybe the spirit will help us to realize today because we need to make it. That the secret to contentment and joy in life doesn't lie in how much you possess. Listen, it doesn't lie in how much you possess, but rather it lies in how much you allow your money to possess you. It's not about how much money you possess. It's about how much you allow your money to possess you. Look at what Jesus does here. He presses deeply into this warning. Listen, just carefully. Do you believe Jesus? Then take this warning. Look what he says. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, this is where a teacher is saying, listen to me, I'm making a point. Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Friends, why are the disciples astonished? The context they had, and to be fair, a lot of the Old Testament witness speaks to this, but the context they had is that wealth served as a sign of God's blessing and nearness in your life. Now, that can still be true. God blesses how God wants to bless. But the falsehood they believed that was, was this, the more you have, the closer you are to God. <laughs> and in contrast, the poorer you are, the further away you are from God and his blessing and his kingdom and his love and his company. Jesus turns that all on his head and to a completely ridiculous extent. <laughs> Don't you love this image? He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now listen, I've read so many commentators over the years on this. You know what conclusion I've come to with most of them? They're probably all rich. <laughs> you know why? They've sold a lot of commentaries, clearly. They go like, no, 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 no. Not a camel. Not a camel. That's actually a rope. <laughs> and the word in the Greek between rope and camel is very, very similar. And so what this means is if you get a really big needle and a really small rope, it can actually go, right? You don't need to worry about it. Or other commentators have come along and they said, no, no, there was actually this gate, which none of the archeological evidence suggests, that was called the eye of the needle and it was just, just smaller than a regular camel. And so what you had to do is you had to take all of the baggage off the camel. And so the message of the scripture is get rid of your baggage and then you get a few people just to push really hard and you can actually get in, right? which is kind of the message that the rich young ruler wants. What must I do, right? And so what we've comforted ourselves with is like, oh no, it's hard, but it's super doable, right? What's the disciple's conclusion? It's impossible. And so what's he talking about? 
a full-size camel and a teeny tiny needle. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying in human perspective, you can't do it no matter how hard you push, no matter how much baggage you lay aside, friends. Jesus is being stark for a reason. And listen, I wanna be clear here. And remember, I come to you with humility and with warning to myself. The truth is that when the Bible speaks of the wealthy or of those who want to be wealthy, it does so not usually with consistent tones of either praise or condemnation, but there is a thread. There is a usual tone when the Bible speaks to the wealthy or those who want to be wealthy. You know what the thread is? You know what the theme is? Warning, warning. The big idea of the Bible is not a call to be rich or to be poor, but to the rich and those who want to be rich, the Bible comes with the language of warning and not just here, it's all over the place. If you can't get your heads fully around the warnings of camels and eyes of needles, because I know it's been probably a long time since you were around both, right? The key to that analogy is one's super big, one's teeny tiny, right? They can't go. But look at how Paul speaks plainly to Timothy, right? A young pastor, he's telling him, hey, you're gonna disciple your church, you're gonna need to train them not to love money. Now, here's what he says in 1 Timothy 6. He says, to those who desire to be rich, those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why the love of money? Not money itself. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. You see, the, the desire for wealth, friends, according to the scriptures, introduces an entire range of temptations that aren't in play for those who don't have that desire. In other words, it makes it significantly more difficult, listen, to faithfully follow Jesus if you love money. And he warned us about that himself. Look, look what he says in Luke 6, 24. He's comparing blessings and woes, the blessings of the kingdom to the woes of this world. And here's one of the woes. Woe to you who are rich. <laughs> you have received your consolation. This is the contrast to the beatitude. Everyone wants to be on the blessing side of the scale. And Jesus says, the rich, and they're like, blessed. He's like, no, woe to you. Blessed are those who have eternal rewards waiting for them. If you have piled up tons of nice stuff now, guess what? Enjoy it because that's what you get. Jesus says the same thing about a claim, same thing about societal approval for religious piety, by the way. Oh, you, you, your good deeds are approved by people here on earth? Enjoy it. <laughs> that's all the approval you're gonna get. It's better to do things in secret and to store up treasures in heaven, right? The New Testament witness of warning is consistent. If you're still not persuaded, I can feel the room growing heavy. You're like, can't believe I came this morning. It's sunny outside. I could be eating avocado toast right now, right? <laughs> and you're going like, wait, is $14 for avocado toast? Does that make me rich? I think it does. Okay, I wouldn't have avocado toast. <laughs> Look at James 5. It says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I'm reading this to myself. Your riches have rotted and your, garden, your garments are moth-eaten. The context here is James warning his readers against the idea of believing that they could control the future. 
And clearly one of the ways that we try to do that is through the accumulation of wealth. He goes on, verse three, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last day. James's point before he goes on to explain that their riches have come at the expense of some of their brothers and sisters in Christ, which is an important sermon for another day, was that these wealthy readers had actually disobeyed Jesus' command to lay up treasures for themselves in heaven. They had stored them here in a temporary place, and listen, in a very important era, according to James, the last days. James says, you're living in the last days, which makes it insane to store up a whole bunch of resources here that really need to be used for the advance of the kingdom and where you have an eternal reward waiting for you. And some of us, friends, listen, some of us, not all of us, some of us are neck deep in that pursuit right now and no one's calling us out for it. I've seen people disciplined in church for a lot of things. We give a lot of warnings. You know what I've never seen? Someone disciplined for love and money. Why? We still actually think it's the key to happiness. We still actually think it's the key to God's blessing and favor and life to the fullest. Okay, why? Quickly, let me just be your pastor for a sec. Why does the Bible have these warnings for people who desire wealth? Well, firstly, the nature of gospel reception is an acknowledgement of total and utter poverty. (laughs) In order to be a Christian, you have to be poor in spirit. Wealth actually erodes our ability to be that. Doesn't eliminate it, erodes it. Secondly, wealth adds additional pressures and distractions. Now, I know that we all experience this, but I want to tell you, not just the poor feel pressured by money. (laughs) Upward mobility means upward responsibility, and many of us have dramatically increased earning without dramatically reducing pressure. You notice that? If 25-year-old Ross got a glimpse at my paycheck today, he would be like, you're giving most of that away, surely, fool, surely. But what happens? No, your responsibilities just go up and up and up and up and up and up. More money, more problems. The notorious B.I.G. was correct, right? He said, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see, right? Prophetic, prophetic and helpful, all right. Thirdly, it's significantly more difficult to store up treasures in heaven. Listen, when it means letting go of existing treasures on earth. When you've actually experienced treasures on earth, it's much harder to let them go. I found that it's way easier to be generous in principle (laughs) than it is in practice. 25-year-old Ross assumed that by this stage I'd be giving most of my salary away. It was easy in principle. It's hard in practice. Lastly, why these warnings? Because here's my observation as a pastor. Accountable community becomes way more difficult and complex when money is involved and when people have lots of means. Why? Whether we like it or not, wealth builds protective bubbles around people that makes it much harder to reach them. It's quite simply true, I wish it wasn't. But means builds power and influence in society and that ends up separating people away from each other. At first it feels good (laughs) until they simply find themselves alone in the bubble that was built around them. 
You go to a small group, you'll hear people confess lots of things. You'll hear people talk about lots of areas where they need help and discipleship. I can't remember a single time when I've been in a small group where someone's gone, here's my paycheck, here's my bank balance, here's my asset register, please help me not become a camel. Please help me. That's Christian community. The more you got, the harder that is to do, is my experience. Okay, it's important to note all of that. <laughs> Maybe it's feel you, left you feeling this morning like the disciples. They're like, well, then who can be saved? What's the point of all of this? Well, how can we prevent turning ourselves into camels? Well, a few ways for us today. Look at verse 26, I'm nearly done. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You now realize how much you've used that verse out of context? We use that verse to gain wealth. Oh, it's possible. I could win the lottery this week, right? Because with God, all things are possible. He's going, no, when I say that, I mean it's actually possible to give stuff away. Now, that's the miracle. And so friends, today, it is impossible. So what do we do? We ask for God's supernatural power. We spend a lot of time in church community warning people about all sorts of sin and we ask that the Spirit provide supernatural protection in all sorts of areas. But Jesus tells us that we need the supernatural mercy of God to rescue us from a love of money. When was the last time you asked the Holy Spirit to protect your heart against the love of money? Friends, can I tell you this? It's impossible and I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it even in this church. In our crazy, growing, exciting city, I've seen men and women come to us and say, by God's grace, I have a lot of means. Help me store up treasure in heaven. I've seen it and it's one of the most powerful things in the world. It's impossible with man. With God, it's possible. All right, Peter, like many of us, wants to push back. He wants to remind Jesus he's given some stuff. Maybe you're, sitting, you're feeling defensive more. I've been tithing. I mean, that's, I mean you know, a bit and after tax and that stuff. But I, I've been, I've been, right? And so look how Peter pushes back. He says, Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. And who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus reminds and reassures Peter that our life here is simply one of temporary stewardship, which is the next helpful way for you to not become a camel. You've got to ask for God's power, and then you've got to view your life as stewardship. Jesus says, nothing you lose in this life compares to what you will gain in eternity. Nothing. Paul gives us some very practical advice. I promise I'm nearly done. The last time I was joking, so this time I'm serious, right? On how to do this when he writes to Timothy. He says, look at this, 1 Timothy 6. Go read this when you get home. It's so powerful. Verse 17, he says, as for the rich in this present age. Now look, he's not gonna tell them. All of you have to be like the rich young ruler. You have to give it all away or you can't enter the kingdom. Look at his practical advice. If you're rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Why? He richly provides us with everything to enjoy, right? Stuff's not the problem. It's the fact that it possesses us that's the problem. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here's an actual way for the wealthy to fight back against idolatry. Idolatry, effective stewardship means don't be haughty. Don't be proud about your wealth. 
Don't place your hope on uncertain things. Make sure you steward God's provision. Be ready to share. Be radically generous. Radically generous. And invest in heaven. Paul laid the groundwork earlier in the chapter for how you can do that. Because you might go, I don't know how I'll do that. Well, Paul told us earlier in the chapter, verse 6, he said, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And so friends, if you're going to live a life of stewardship, you know what you're going to have to practice? Contentment. How many of us are content with what the Lord has entrusted to us? How much of our life, our energy is striving from a place of discontent and repeat cycles of post-purchase cognitive dissonance every time. Oh, when this thing arrives, <laughs> I'm gonna be so happy. We open it, I'm like, not that happy. It's nice, it's just not as nice as I thought it would be. And we just do it again and again and again and again. As I close, imagine. Imagine if God gave us a vision today of what we could accomplish for his mission if we all stewarded the resources he entrusted us better than we currently do. As I look across the church and I go, imagine the potential of content people living as faithful stewards with radical generosity and joy, free from the love of money. Imagine. Imagine the works of mercy we could do in our city. Imagine the kind of countercultural community we could be in Austin, which is chasing money with everything it has. Imagine if God gave us a vision today that we could accomplish for his mission if we all just stewarded these resources that is entrusted to us, whether those resources be a lot or a little. We're stewards. We need to be found faithful. Here's some application points. Okay, I'm out your hair. First one. Start today, regardless of where you are with wealth, with a simple declaration of stewardship. Tell the Lord, tell him this, all I have is yours. It's yours. Do with it what you want. Let's just stop for a second. If you're a Christian, why don't you just say that to God? Everything I have is yours. Do with it what you want. Everything I have, I hold loosely. Help me to live simply. Help me to be radically generous as a citizen of the kingdom. Oh, Lord, make me a good steward. Secondly, today as an exercise with someone else, audit your life. How are you actually doing with your money? Are you in financial strife and needing help? It's help. We want to help you. Come speak to somebody. Are you in an unsustainable cycle of spending and debt? Get help. Let's help you. Let's bring you some financial responsibility and accountability and wisdom. Let's get you out of that. Are you blindly pursuing upward mobility? Has it been a long time since you've been checked on it? Ask someone to check you on it. Do you love money? Repent. Thirdly, dream big. Dream big. I want to be like John Wesley. Right? I don't want to give 90% of my money away. I want to get to the end and they go like, what's left over? Nothing. Why? He gave it all away. Dream big. 
but you're gonna have to start small and develop a plan. Some of you are actually crippled by your circumstances right now, and I get it. You've got young kids in the house, you've got student debt, you've got things going on. You hear a message like this, you get fired up, but then you end up like the rich young ruler walking away sad because you go, I don't know how. Well, take some small steps today, just small ones. Where can you simplify? Where can you avoid more crippling debt? Where do you need help? Where can you start to practice generosity? Start today. And then lastly, friends, lastly, remember God's mercy. I love that the gospel accounts are all slightly different. In the gospel of Mark, there's a little phrase in there that didn't make it into Matthew. It's right after the rich young ruler says that he's kept all of these commandments, which he obviously hasn't. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus looks at him and loves him. Isn't that amazing? He looks at this young man. He thinks he's got it all figured out. And he loves him. And friends, he loves us. How do we know? Well, Ephesians 2 says that God being rich in mercy. God's got all of the wealth. How does he display it? Through mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace (laughs) in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. You can't earn it. You can't climb the ladder towards it. What is it? It's a radically kind and generous gift of God. Not by works. So you cannot boast. Our friends, stop the pursuit. Stop the pursuit. When it comes to loving us, God gives everything. He goes all in to give us the great gift of grace and salvation. Our God is so generous with us. How foolish would it be, listen, friends, in these last days, (laughs) then to be like the rich young ruler who could have had the fullness of life in the kingdom and choose a stuff instead. Oh God, free us and liberate us from such a foolish pursuit. Friends, I love you. We're after your heart. Ask the Lord to reveal to you where you can grow in this area and where we can help. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your word. I pray that today your word through your spirit will accomplish what I cannot do. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not persuasive enough. Lord, but I pray that your word would cut us to the heart today because you love us. Like you love that young man, you love us. And so you wanna see us live lives of freedom and generosity and stewardship and the crazy freedom of contentment that we see so little of in the world. Oh, imagine we live that way. Help us to start today. For those, Father, listening to this who are crippled right now because they are in poverty struggling to hear this because they're going, you don't understand. I can't even make my ends meet. Oh, Lord, may we be a community where there isn't one who has need. Let us be that community. I pray that you give them the boldness to reach out to church leadership. You give us the wisdom and gentleness to walk alongside them in faith. 
for those who feel foolish this morning because they ought to be able to live off of what they get, but they can't because they've overspent. They've overreached. They've played the game. Oh, Lord, meet them with mercy today. Give them the humility to turn and to stop and to change. As difficult as it will be, they won't fix it today, but help them to start. Lord, for those today who have great means, give them the freedom of contentment. Give them the joy of kingdom generosity. Help them to store up great treasures for themselves in heaven. And then for all of us across the board who are tempted to love money more than we love you, oh, help us to turn and return to you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.